take time to come before Heavenly Father, lifting the prayers of his people before him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that through your Son, Jesus, we can come to you as your children, as those who are in need, as those who have joy and hope, as those who are in pain and suffering. Lord God, we come to you this morning because you have asked us to. Lord, we lift up to you those among us who are this day sick in mind, body, or spirit. Lord, we particularly think of Nick Protos. And Lord God, we received word just as worship was beginning today, Lord God, that the doctors have found that his cancer is ravaging his body, that the pain he's been experiencing is from that cancer returning with a vengeance. Lord, we pray that this new treatment might be able to be continued, and Lord, that it would indeed fight back this cancer once again. Lord, we lift up Brenda Jested, and we thank you for her good report. Lord, we pray that you continue to sustain her. Lord, we pray, we thank you that she is indeed feeling well. And Lord, that her cancer is responding to the medication, the treatments that she is under. Lord, we continue to think of those who have lost loved ones, particularly Carlos Blanco and his family. Be with them, Lord God, as they mourn the death of Carlos's father. Lord, comfort them. Give them peace. Lord God, we continue to pray for the people of Ukraine. We continue to pray, Lord, for resolution, for peace. Lord, we pray that you would indeed intercede in a mighty way. Lord, sustain all the people of Ukraine. Sustain your people, Lord God, who continue to minister in your name. May they be light in the darkness, salt that would preserve. Lord, be with them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time... Kids who are headed to our Covenant Kids Worship may be dismissed. That's for kids four years old through first or second grade. Whatever you find helpful for your family, as always, kids are welcome to stay with us in the service this morning. And I just want to apologize for those of you who were in here when the, when the music team started singing. Uh, not, there wasn't any, not that anybody wasn't in here, but... There was a good, good number that weren't in here yet when they first went through, so. But it's all grace. I mean, there's, I, I didn't take attendance or anything, so no, don't worry about it. I mean, there's, I don't, I don't even know who was in here, and I just know there were lots of seats that weren't, that weren't full yet. So as we, as we come to our text this morning, before we get to it, I want to ask uh, adults and kids alike, have you ever gone on a hike? Have you ever gone on a hike? And when you think about going on a hike, what do you need to do to prepare for the hike? 
You know, maybe you've maybe you've hiked the trail so many times you don't even have to really repair at all. Maybe just take some water with you so you don't get dehydrated. But depending on what kind of hike you're going on, it's probably a good idea to maybe look at the trail map ahead of time to kind of have an idea of where the trail is supposed to take you. Um, you might want to take some water with you so you don't get dehydrated on the hike. If the hike is going to be extra long, you might want to pack some snacks, you know, maybe a compass, uh, maybe layers of clothes because the weather might change as you're on your hike. You know, when we were uh, in Scotland several years ago, we hiked a lot. I think most of you know that we tried to do a hike a day was how we tried to fill some of our time while we were there. And some of those hikes were short hikes. We'd, you know, just be gone for an hour or two and we'd pack water and maybe a few snacks. But some were really long hikes. I mean, hikes that would take us most of the day to, uh, to accomplish. And we had to plan. We had to sit down. We had to figure out what we needed for that day. We'd look at the trail maps and see how long the hike was, how long it might take us. Uh, if you remember, uh, I, I've mentioned before that they um, called them way markers that would show where the trail was. And sometimes those way markers weren't very way. <laughs> and so you had to have an idea of where you were going, what the trail, where it was supposed to take you. We'd pack food and water. And if it was a war, even a warm, sunny day when we left our house, we'd pack, we'd pack uh, uh, winter hats and gloves and rain gear because the weather could literally change at a moment's notice. And some might say we had to kind of count the cost of what that hike was going to require of us that day. This morning, Jesus is continuing on his hike or his journey to Jerusalem, his journey to die. And he tells his disciples and those in the crowd that they need to prepare. They need to look at the trail map. They need to prepare for what is ahead. They need to count the cost of being his disciple. You see, like today, many who were following Jesus, were there for the kingdom blessing, for all that they could get from Jesus. And while, don't hear what I'm not saying, while there is abundant kingdom blessing and Jesus gives without complaint, there is a cost to being Jesus' disciple. Not a cost to become one, not a cost to stay one, but a cost on how the world sees us and how we must see the world, a cost that is very real because of our relationship with Jesus, because we follow him and no one else. So let's read from Luke 14, verses 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish. All who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. 
Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray this morning that you would indeed give us ears to hear. We thank you and praise you for the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. So we continue our series in Luke, and last week in Luke 14, 1 through 24, Jesus once again healed on the Sabbath. Jesus healed a man with dropsy and then gives two parables about the welcome of the kingdom of God, about the hospitality that we receive and the kind that we are to give as followers of Christ. In the context of that passage, the question we asked was, have we accepted the invitation of Jesus? And if you have, have you compelled others to come? Have you compelled others to come to the banquet that Jesus has invited you to? The hospitality of Jesus, we saw, is for the humbled. Anyone who knows their need and will come. And so we looked at the examples that Jesus gives of those who don't know their need and for the hospitality that Jesus offers. We saw the pious, the proud, and the preoccupied and asked ourselves if we see ourselves in any of those. And if we do, to humble ourselves and be welcomed to the banquet that Jesus has prepared for us. This morning, we come to the end of this section of Jesus' journey where he's been warning the people and us. He's been warning them. You'll remember just uh, back a few chapters, right? There's this, uh, this warning that he gives about the narrow door, the locked door, the revolving door. He laments that those who do not hear will be left out of the kingdom. He heals this man on the Sabbath and gives these parables of the wedding feast and the the great messianic banquet as a warning for us to hear his words. And he ends this section with that refrain, let those who have ears hear. This is part of this section where Jesus has been warning the people and us that we need to take seriously his claims as Savior and King. And those who do not will be left out of the kingdom, out of the great banquet, out of his love. This final section of his warnings moves from warning that we might miss out to warning us to make sure we understand what it means to be 
a disciple of Jesus, one of his followers. You see, then and now, many people want the king without the kingdom, or they want the kingdom without the king. The king without the kingdom looks something kind of like this. I love Jesus, and Jesus loves me, and I'm saved to eternal life. But you know what? That kingdom living stuff, to live with the values and virtues of the kingdom, I don't need that. All I need is the king. And the kingdom without the king looks something like this. I don't need a king to save me. But what I really need are the values and virtues of the kingdom. And if I have those values and virtues and I can get the rest of society and culture to engage those values and virtues, that will bring heaven to earth. Do you hear the truth in both of those? There is a deep and needed truth that each of those aspects of what we see today and what Jesus saw in his day. But according to Jesus, neither one has either. Right? According to Jesus, you can't have the king without the kingdom. And you can't have the kingdom without the king. You can't have what you want. Right? As the Rolling Stones said, you can't always get what you want. Jesus says you need both, the king and the kingdom. And so this morning, once again, Jesus asks, just like he said with the parable of the sower in Luke 8, 8, at the conclusion of that parable, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So this morning, we must ask ourselves, do we have ears to hear? That's the question that Jesus is asking us. Do we have ears to hear? Will we listen? Do we have ears to hear what discipleship is really like? And are we willing to bear that cost? Do we have ears to hear what discipleship is really like? And are we willing to bear that cost? We see this morning is that because Jesus bore the ultimate cost, we can bear the cost of discipleship. Because Jesus bore the ultimate cost, we can bear the cost of discipleship. First, we'll look at the cost of discipleship and then calculating the cost. The cost of discipleship, Jesus shows us in verses 25 through 27. Right? He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is saying paradoxically, right? He's not saying that we literally are to hate others. That would go against much of Jesus' other teaching, right? Honor your father and mother, right? Love your neighbor as yourself, but there's a paradox here that Jesus is saying that we often love those more than we love him. And in comparison, it should look like we indeed hate our mother and father, our wife, 
children, brothers and sisters, even our own life in comparison to our love for our Savior, Jesus. It's this paradox that our love for Him must be so great and pervasive that our natural love of self and even family and friends pales in comparison. We are to subordinate everything, even our own being, to our love and commitment to Christ. He is our first primary loyalty, and all the relationships take a second place. Right, I remember that um, several years ago, there was a, a famous um, thing, I think it was Fellowship of Christian Athletes that put it out, it was like, I am second. Right, this, this idea that Jesus is first and foremost, and I am second. Whatever, whatever uh, success I have achieved or whatever thing I have done, I am second. I am subordinate to Jesus Christ. He is first and foremost. This paradox shows us that the proper way to love our father and mother to love our spouse, to love our children, to love our friends, even to love ourselves is to hate, quote unquote, because of our greater love for God. And this paradox is that when we love God that way, we actually love our neighbor, our closest neighbors, our mother and father, our wife, our husband, our children, our friends, greater than we could have ever loved them before. You see, Jesus is saying that disciples, those who truly put him first, love him first, are the best lovers of God and of family and friends. And this not only applies to our relationships, but to our, our work and other activities in our lives. All must be hated, Jesus is saying, in relationship to him in order for us to truly and deeply love, for us to truly and deeply enjoy and give through our work and other activities, we must, in relationship to God, in Christ Jesus, hate those things. C.S. Lewis had it right when he said, the Christian way is different. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. No half measures are any good. Jesus is saying that every would-be disciple must count the cost before he enters discipleship. And that cost, Jesus says, is everything. Even our possessions, everything, every corner of our lives, Jesus says, is ultimately his. And if we do not understand that, we do not understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So we see the cost of discipleship. And Jesus says, this is the cost, now count it. Verses 28 through 33, he gives these examples, right, of someone who's going to build something and they, wouldn't you sit down and count the cost? Whether 
you have enough to complete it, right? Otherwise, you'll get the foundation laid and you might get some walls up and then poof, you can't finish it and you'll be mocked for it. Or this king going out to war will deliberate whether he has the ability to go to battle with 10,000 against 20,000. And if not, what is he going to do? He's going to go seek peace with the one who's coming against him. Right? Anyone who of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Right? He's saying that this king who's counting the cost is basically renouncing his kingdom in order to keep peace. Likewise, we are renouncing the little kingdoms that we all are kings of. And Jesus is the one who is actually coming as a delegation of peace because we don't know any better. We think, yes, we can go to battle and win. And Jesus says, no, I'm sending the delegation of peace to you. He gives us these examples of counting the cost, right? When we endeavored to put this addition on the church, we spent a lot of time counting the cost. We spent months and months and months counting the cost, looking, can we do this? Can we do this? What are the signs that we can do this? Are we able to bring this to completion? We must count the cost. The, you may have heard of the 10,000-hour rule that became well-known through Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. And that rule says that in order to master something, to become a professional athlete or a professional musician or master some complex skill, a person must put in a minimum of 10,000 hours to become, to get to that level. Right? A person must count the cost of the hours that they put in, but what Gladwell overlooked in the research is that as important as practice is, as much as it does require a great cost to be determined, what's surprising is how much it also matters in who your teacher is. Erickson's research suggests that someone could practice for thousands of hours and still not be a master performer because they did not have the right teacher, right? They could be outplayed by someone who practiced less because they had a teacher who showed them just what to focus on at the key moment in their practice regimen. Jesus is reminding us that he is our great teacher, he tells us what to focus on. What does he say that we're to focus on? The cross. Right? There's 
Lots of practice in being a disciple of Jesus. We practice, we fail, we get back up, we keep going. But what does Jesus say is the key that we as his disciples must focus on? The cross. First, the cross that Jesus bore. The cross of Christ, which Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, which we read earlier, explains. Therefore, since we have since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race set out before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, once we clearly see Jesus, once we clearly see the cost that he sat down and determined whether it was worth it. You see, Jesus was the one who sat down and counted the cost. And he counted the cost, and he said, the cost is worth it. Why? For the joy set before him. I've said this several times before, but if you've never heard it, please hear this. The only joy that was set before Christ that he did not already have an eternity past and would have for eternity future was the redemption of his people, of you and me. He sat down and counted the cost and the cost of his very life, of his blood shed for you and me was worth it because of the joy set before him. And once we clearly see Jesus, we pick up and bear our own cross for the joy set before us. Jesus. You see, Jesus is our joy set before us. It is because of that joy that we have in Christ that we can sit down and count the cost. Say, Jesus is worth it because I was worth it to Jesus. You know, and those who follow Jesus, who have counted the cost, Jesus says are like salt. He called his disciples and us the salt of the earth because through a disciple's presence in the world, Jesus is present. There is flavor. There is life. You can put salt in the, in the, in the soil to get it to help produce life. You can put it on food to preserve, to give it taste. But if family ties and possessions hinder his disciples, they will be like tasteless salt. 
worthless and deserving of being thrown out. But even as salt loses its saltiness, Jesus says, do not lose contentment in me. Right? If the saltiness is lost, the disciple is not fit for what he has been called to, what he or she has been called to. But the disciple who is fully committed to Jesus in respect to family, the cross, possessions, is a powerful representative of the kingdom. His or her life is delivered from boring to blandness. His or her presence is always felt. He or she seasons the life of family, friends, the church, and society. His or her life brims with vitality. Like salt, they bring out the best of the flavor of living. Brothers and sisters, for the joy set before Jesus, he went to the cross for you. For the joy set before us, Jesus calls us to be his disciple, to be the salt of the kingdom to bring the best flavor to the world around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who for the joy set before him counted the cost. Lord, we thank you for his life, death, and resurrection. Lord, we pray as we fix our eyes on Jesus that we might pick up and bear our own cross for the joy set before us, your son, Jesus. And as we bear that cross, Lord, may the salt of the earth, your people, us, bring the best flavor of living even to those who might despise us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.